Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together this morning in freedom to learn more about you, to open up your word. Lord, again, that you've not left us with subjective feelings to know who you are, but the objective word of God. And Lord, that you've promised to lead us into all truth. And Heavenly Father, I ask that you would illuminate our minds and uh, open up our hearts to hear your word this morning, that you would sharpen our minds to know who you are and what you've done through your Son. And Lord, I ask for the people on the internet, I ask, Lord, that you would also do the same for them and that you would give them fellowship even through us. And we ask that you would accomplish this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. I want to make a quick announcement about last week. I gave a sermon that I was really excited about. I I got a little too excited and I said something that I didn't want to say. It came off wrong. And it was interesting who caught it. Carl, you know, Bob gives out the Astute Reading Award. I'm going to give out the Astute Listening Award to Carl because he called me on the phone. He says, hey, who imputes righteousness and sins? I said, well, God does. And I thought, oh, good, we're going to have this big conversation. Then I started realizing the reason why he probably called is because I said something, a gaffe, and I did. Last week, I don't know if you recall, I was talking about imputation of sin during my sermon. And what I wanted to say was we have our sins imputed to Christ, but what came out is we impute our sins to Christ. And you see the difference with leaving out that have, it sounds like we're doing the imputing. So let me make it very clear. When we trust in Christ, the great transaction occurs, but God is the one who is imputing both our sins to Christ, so Christ is the one who bears them, and his righteousness to us. But it's God who's doing the imputing. Okay, It's not us. We don't have the power to impute. We merely trust and even that, as Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 makes very clear, is a gift of God. Okay, so even our faith is a gift from God. So just make it very clear. And we're going to, in fact, make a little addendum and a, a recording to make sure it's right on the Internet. So if anybody listens to the sermon, I'm going to put it right up front. Because, you guys, we need to be, I'm sorry, my friends, we need to be persnickety. <laughs> we need to be very persnickety about the gospel because it, we need to be so precise and so careful. So anyway... Wherever Carl is, he gets the astute listening award, and uh, I just wanted to make sure that was very, very clear. So, okay, with that, we're going to be back in the book of Colossians here. And let me just read this. It's really an exciting section. I know it's only three verses, and you're probably wondering, how can we fill our time up with only three verses? But here we're going to see that Christ will present his elect blameless before the throne. And what I want to do is I want to look at the outline of where we have been where we are, and where we're going in this study. If you recall, the last time we were talking in Colossians, we were studying the great Christ hymn where the preeminence of Christ was laid out in a magnificent way that we saw not only was he the creator of all things, but he was also the redeemer of all things. And in fact, because of that, he earned the title firstborn over all creation. Okay. Now, this morning... We're going to be looking at a section talking about the application of the hymn. And by the way, notice in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that that Christ hymn it was all discussed in the third person because it all related to Christ. So let's, let's just review this real quick. First person is I, singular. Okay. Second person is you, okay, singular. And then I'm talking about the singular. And then third person would be he or she. All right. Now when we get into the plural... First person plural would be we, second person plural would be you plural, and third person would be they, okay, plural. All right, does that all make sense? So what I'm pointing out here 
is in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the whole discussion is in the third person, singular, because it's about Christ. Well, then the tense, or I should say the person changes to second person because now, in this section we're looking at, verses 21 through 23, Paul is applying who Christ is to you. And it's first and foremost to the Colossians, but by extension to all of us. Okay? And then, after that, you're going to see, the next time we get together, we're going to get into the apostolic task, and you're going to see Paul talking about why he's been called to be an apostle, and now he's going to switch between first and second person, because it's about him, and it's about you, the Colossians, and by extension, uh, you and I. Okay? Does that make sense? So, we're just going to be looking at the middle section today, the application of the hymn, and there's a very interesting structure that I see, and right away in verse 21 and 22... Verse 21a, it says, And you, then being hostile in mind. Now, the then being, then is tata, and being is antas. Okay, now remember when Bob yesterday was talking about ontology? That has to do with being. Okay, ontologically. Remember he made the distinction between ontologically. What the emergents are saying is, God is ontologically, he is this, he is being, he is inside or part of the podium. That has to do with ontology or essence or being. What the Bible talks about is omnipresence, that he's here spatially, but he's not this thing. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's where that term comes from. So the point is, is that at one time, the Colossians were being, their whole being was hostile in mind, and it was in, and I'm going to make the case that it was in the realm, in the sphere, or think about it, in the land, of bad works or evil works, okay? Now you're going to see this but, and I call it the divine but, not because I'm trying to be cute, but because you're going to see how profound it is what God has done for us. We get to verse 22, but now. And in fact, you're going to see God alone has reconciled us, and now we're in his flesh, okay? So there's this contrast, if I can point up here, there's this contrast between then and now. We were then in evil works, but we're now in his flesh. Okay? So there's this great contrast that we see. And again, to Paul, in the scriptures at large, there's only two realms. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son. Right? And we're going to see that same theme come about again in this section. So let's look at the divine but. And I'm going to show you some other passages where we see this. Let's read Colossians 1, 21 through 22 together. Paul writes, And you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind in evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now let's start. I want to talk about this term alienated. And it's an interesting term because, again, any time we see a perfect tense as a perfect tense participle, our mind should quicken up. Because perfect tense, remember, that means something that happened in the past, it was perfectly completed, and the effect is still with us today. And again, I think Paul is alluding to the alienation that all men and women find themselves in because of original sin. Remember David said, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That is the story of every man, woman, and child. Okay? We are all born into sin, and therefore we are alienated. So think of the things of God over here, 
we want nothing to do with them. We always walk away. We are alienated. We are enemies. And that's why we need reconciliation. And so notice Paul goes on to say that we were hostile in mind. So our minds have been basically made defective by original sin. Remember, total depravity does not mean utter depravity. Utter depravity means we're utterly as depraved as we could possibly be. No. Total depravity, the doctrine that we believe says that sin has affected every aspect of who we are, in, including our minds. So we don't think right. Okay? We, didn't, we don't think right. We can't perceive and therefore believe the gospel because we don't think right. We're affected by sin. So we're alienated by God or from God, and we don't think right as a, as a result of that sin. That's what Paul is saying here. Now we come to another preposition. And we're going to have a choice as an interpreter with this in. And the choice is this. We can either interpret this in spatially. In other words, remember the idea of sphere. We're in this sphere or we're in this sphere. Or we can translate it causally. In other words, it would be the idea that alienated and hostile in mind by doing evil deeds. It would be kind of that idea. Okay. In fact, who has an NASB Bible? I think you'll see it says here, right between mind and in, it says engaged in evil deeds. Now, interestingly enough, you'll see in your NASB Bible that it's italicized, that engaged is. The reason why it's italicized is it's, they're inserting it. Okay? So I'm giving you kind of my own personal translation. It's very literal. And I think we should leave it out because I think Paul is saying something more profound than that's something that's done causally. In other words, think about this theologically, my friends. Are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? Okay? You see what I'm saying? So if this is causal, as the New American Standard would seem to have us believe, engaged, or and by the way, the New King James Version translates it by, and so that would be causal as well, that would indicate that the reason why we're alienated or the cause of our hostility in mind is because of our evil deeds. Well, according to the rest of our theology, we're born sinners. So the reason why we engage in evil deeds is actually because we're alienated and hostile in mind. You see, we're reversing it. So if we have the cause, if this is, we translate it causally, I think we're getting our theology wrong. So the only option left to us is that this should be what's called a dative of sphere or spatially. So it's the idea that because we were wretched sinners, because we we're hostile to God, we were living in the land, in the sphere of evil deeds. And everything that characterized us and those who were with us is evil all the time. Nothing is pleasing to God. Remember Hebrews 11:6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so that's why Isaiah, as he rebukes the Israelites in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, even your righteous deeds, the deeds that you're counting on, are to me as filthy rags. Filthy rags. That's how God considers our deeds without faith in Christ, being in the sphere of Christ. So we are living in the land of evil deeds. Okay? That's the idea. So we're in that sphere. Now, notice, here we have the divine but. But now. So we were in a bad situation, completely alienated from God, but now God has acted on our behalf. And if he did not, we would remain in the land of evil deeds the rest of our lives. 
That's the idea here. So he, notice it doesn't say we or a combination. It is he has reconciled you. And now we come to another preposition in his fleshly body. Now, I'm of the mindset that the first preposition that we saw would help us understand the second preposition. Because remember, to Paul, there's always this sphere in this sphere. You see what I'm saying? So in other words, are we going to translate this preposition as causal or as being in the sphere of again? Now, it seems awkward when we look at it and say, well, I think it's in the sphere. How can we be in the sphere of his fleshly body? That just doesn't seem quite right. So then I think to myself, well, self, maybe <laughs> maybe it's causal. So what he's saying is the reason or the cause, I should say the, the cause of our reconciliation, it's in his flesh. But you know what's interesting is there's a through. And that through is causal. It's through his death. So we already have the cause there. It's through his death. So here's my take. I think that this preposition in should be also translated spatially or being in the sphere of his fleshly body. And I'll tell you why. The greater context of the book of Colossians, I think, tells us this. And here's what the issue was. When we come to Colossians 2.18, we're going to see a term called imbatuon. Imbatuon, we find from this man, Clinton Arnold, who did a lot of research into the, the subject, he found that that term was a proper term that was placed on a lot of temples for a mystery initiation rite, actually the second phase of a mystery initiation rite. And so what the, the problem was is that these Colossian Christians, prior to their conversion, had entered into an experience whereby they had ecstatic visions and it was so real and it left such an indelible mark upon their minds that they could never forget it. So my contention is Paul is laying out the fact that just as this was something that was indelibly left upon your mind because it was so real, Christ has really come. In fact, it's in the flesh. God himself came in the flesh. And I think we may see perhaps... Another reason why Paul is talking about the Messiah coming in the flesh here, so in other words, then we can translate it being in his flesh because it's in that sphere. We're in the sphere of the Messiah coming in the flesh because remember docetism? In 1 John 4, 2, remember the spirit of anyone who doesn't believe that Christ has come in the flesh? They're not from God, right? Because docetism means that, he only, that Christ only seemed to be human, that he really wasn't. So I think perhaps there was some form of docetism maybe involved with this. But the idea here is this. In fact, let me read Clinton Arnold. I want to to have you realize how potent an experience it would have been on the Colossians who had entered into these mystery religions, into this mystery, right? Listen to what Clinton Arnold says about this uh, entering in. And again, it would have been an initiation where they would have had an ecstatic experience This is what Clinton Arnold says in his book on page 120. He says, We cannot underestimate the difficulty they, that would be the Colossian Christians, would have faced in reinterpreting their past experience after becoming Christians. Certainly, it would have been tempting and natural for them to assimilate their past experience and knowledge with the Christianity they had now received. In other words, when they trusted in Christ... It was as if, let me give you an analogy. 
My wife was a missionary in India. And they would go to town to town to preach the gospel and they would think they'd have true converts. Well, when they would come to a person's home that supposedly had trusted in Christ, they would see the person just at a cross to the pantheon of the other God statues. And they were saying, no, 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 you don't understand. All these statues are nothing. They're just made up. And by you trusting in Christ plus them, you have no salvation. Because God is omniscient. He knows what you're trusting in, right? And if it's not Christ alone, you have the wrong Christ. Because if you understood who Christ was, he's sufficient. And therefore, if you add anything to Christ, you have no atonement. It's Christ alone. And that, of course, is the big uh, sola of the Reformation. And so that's why it's such a big issue. So again, I think this should be translated in the sphere of his fleshly body. That's how we will live now. We are living because Christ, God himself, came in the flesh. And that is more real, more profound than any ecstatic experience that they could have undergone in their initiation rite. Does that make sense? I think that's how we should interpret this passage. Now, moving on, again, the through death, that's another preposition, dia, and that typically has to do with cause, in other words, or instrument. The instrument of our reconciliation was through the Messiah's death. And therefore, we have a cause right there. And therefore, we don't have to interpret the in as causal. Okay? I hope that makes sense. Is everybody clear on that? Does that all make sense? I I know I threw a lot down there. Um, But again, just think about what the Colossians, these were people who had this powerful experience and now they're asked to trust. As Bob points out a lot of times, Hebrews is all about trusting in a Savior we can't see. But Paul is making it clear. He came in the flesh. Okay, that's even more real than those visions you had. Okay, and that should be very powerful to the Colossians indeed. Oh, the next term I want to look at, before. This term before, actually I have it written down because it's a hard one to pronounce. Katanopion. It literally means in his sight. So think about this. This idea is that we're going to be made blameless and above reproach in the sight of God. So on the last day, no one can bring an accusation against you and I. Why? Well, because we've been in the sphere of Christ. We have been made whole by Christ. We have been saved by Christ to the utmost. And so no one can even bring an accusation. So think about the two judgments. We have the Bema seat judgment that we see in 2 Corinthians 5. And that is the judgment seat that all Christians will go to. But remember, what's at stake is not whether you go to heaven or hell, okay? but rather how your, reward, your uh, works will be rewarded. Heaven and hell has already been settled. You're going to heaven. Okay, why? Well, because this passage is saying you're above reproach or beyond reproach. You're blameless in his sight. Okay? We see this very same term, katanopion, actually in Ephesians 1.4 where God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and what? Blameless in his sight. So think about how beautiful that is. In the sight of God now, no one can bring an accusation against you. Again, friends, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have the world by the tail. No one can bring an accusation against you in the courtroom of God. Now think about the trouble the unbeliever is in. We know that the great white throne judgment happens in Revelation chapter 20 after the millennium. And they're going to be judged not whether or not they go to heaven or hell. That's already been settled. But I think they're going to be judged according to how bad hell will be for them. Okay? God opens up and he judges them according to their works. And their works are what they're like, what they're like filthy rags. And that's what they're relying upon. In a real sense, at the end of the day, it's either grace or works. 
And God is going to say to them, so you want to open up your works? Well, let's look at them. And they're going to be found very, very deficient. And so you see this stark contrast and you realize, friends, what we've been saved from. Praise God that we have Jesus and that we are living now in the sphere of what he has provided for us. Let me show you another passage with a divine but in it. And again, it's all about God acting on our behalf. We would be in big trouble, but now God acts in our behalf. And we see this again in Romans 3:20 through 21 where Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now, very interesting, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay, so up, notice where I have highlighted bold. It says, the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Why? Because none of us can obey the law completely. The deficiency isn't the law. The deficiency is us. And if we break the law at one point, we've broken the whole thing, Scripture says. Okay, so we're in big trouble. But now, the righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. So now, no longer do you and I have to try to obey. And and by the way, we never had to. Because notice where it's underlined. It says, it's now the, the righteousness apart from the law is revealed. Okay, so it's finally, in a sense, fully revealed. But it was witnessed, notice the underlying, underlying portion, it was always witnessed by the law. So here Paul is using law in two different senses. In the first sense, he's talking about the moral law. You and I have fallen short of that. But in this sense, he's using the law as Torah. Okay. So remember, the Hebrew Bible, sometimes they'll call it the law and the prophets. And sometimes it's called the law, the prophets, and the writings. That, that's where we get the acronym Tanakh. We have Torah. Uh, we have Nebavim and Kapavim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, And sometimes it's just shortened by the prophets. Because, for instance, sometimes Psalms are referred to as the writings. But remember in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is giving his sermon at Pentecost, he says because David was a prophet, he looked ahead and spoke of the Christ. So David and the, the Psalms are sometimes regarded as being the prophets as well. So sometimes it's, you know, there's interchangeability there. But the, the point is, is that Torah witnessed to salvation by faith alone. Okay? Now, how can we be so bold and say that? Well, again, remember Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 4. In fact, Paul argues, my friends, that he says, was, it, was salvation... Before circumcision, or was it after? And of course we know it was before. Circumcision doesn't come to chapter 17. And so Paul concludes, he says, therefore, it has to be by faith. It was before anything Abraham had done. Now remember, Abraham believed in the seed promise. Remember the first promise, Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman, and it uses a, there's a third person masculine pronoun, singular, he would crush the serpent's head. We know, and again, Galatians 3.16 says that seed was Christ. And Paul is right. It was a singular. Whoever that seed was going to be, it was first and foremost the Messiah. But when Abraham is brought out in Genesis 15, remember he says, I don't have an heir. How do I know I'm going to receive the promise? And the Lord says, come outside. You see, so as the stars are, so shall your seed be. 
remember, Abraham knows historically that the seed is first and foremost one. It's the Messiah. But the Messiah will perform salvation for the many. And so because he's going to have Abraham will many descendants, he knows the Messiah will come. And it's coming from his lineage. Okay? So when Abraham trusts, he's trusting in the same Messiah to come 2,000 years in advance. And you and I look back 2,000 years. But it's one faith, one Savior, one cross, one salvation. Does that make sense? In fact, according to Hebrews 11:19, Abraham even believed in the resurrection. And when you come to Genesis 22, remember, the rub is Abraham now has to kill the seed. He has to kill Isaac. But what does he say as he approaches Mount Moriah? He says to his servants, stay here for me and the ladder going up to sacrifice, but we, he uses we, will return. That's significant because there he's demonstrating that whatever happens, Isaac's coming back. So if I have to kill him, like the Lord says, God's going to raise him from the dead. That's exactly the point of Hebrews 11:19. So now Abraham even believes in the resurrection. It's even in the re- he even believes in the resurrection. So he believes he has in the same Messiah. He believes in the same resurrection 2,000 years in advance. You and I look back 2,000 years. But again, one Savior, one cross, one faith, one salvation. Isn't that beautiful? And that's why Paul can say, that this righteousness, apart from the law, was witnessed by the law. Does that all make sense? Okay. But the whole picture is, but now. God has acted just at the right time. Christ was born under the law to represent you and I. And if God did not act, you and I would be again living in the land of evil deeds, never uh, to have hope to leave. Now I want to talk about perseverance of the saints. When we come into verse 23... And notice we have, again, I'm going to keep using these terms, and I, my, my prayer is, is that not that it's overwhelming, but just that they'll start to settle in on your mind, this idea of protesis and apotesis. Simply, if, then. And we'll start seeing it so much that when we read a scholarly material, we'll have a better grasp of what they're saying, because we'll have seen, oh yeah, I've heard that in Sunday school or at the sermon or whatever. I've, I've seen that before. So I want to talk a little bit about this protestant and apotesis, but listen to what Paul writes. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So here we have the if portion, the protestant, and notice the if, the contingency is, if you continue in the faith, okay? If you continue in the faith, what? Well, we have to actually define the apotesis, the then portion of the argument. We have to go back to verse 22, okay? Remember, what was promised is that we will be holy, blameless, and above reproach in him. Does that make sense? So that was back in verse 22. So if we will continue in the faith, then we will be made wholly blameless in his sight. That's the idea. That's the if-then. So the then portion of the argument in verse 23 is implied, and you have to think back to verse 22 to understand the, the apotheosis. All right? So I hope we're all on the same page there. Now, what I want you to see in this next section here is I'm going to talk about different class conditionals. There's, called, there's four classes of conditionals. There's what's called a first-class conditional, 
that's the assumption of truth. In other words, it's the if portion of the argument is assumed to be true. Okay? It's assumed to be true for the sake of argument. Now, be very careful. That doesn't mean it's necessarily true because the speaker could be mistaken. Does that make sense? But it's assumed to be true by the one who's speaking in the Scriptures. So the if portion, if you're faithful, if you continue, okay, that's assumed to be true. If you do that, then you will, in fact, be blameless in his sight. So that's assumed to be true. That's the idea by the speaker. The second one, the second class conditional, is an assumption of untruth, where it's, in fact, I have an example of that. Who has John 5.46? Let me give you an example of this second class conditional. It's a member, an if then we're talking about. And oh, Robert, you had that one, didn't you? <laughs> John 5.46. Yeah, so listen, this is a second class conditional. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Mm, very good. So think about this. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says, if you believed in Moses, what's the assumption? They don't. <laughs> so Jesus is assuming that that's not, it's not true, that they don't believe in Moses. And again, we just talked about that. Why is it important that they believe in Moses? Because Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, remember, that's where we see the, the gospel, right? So that was all about Christ. That's the whole point. So Jesus is rightly saying, if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me. And of course, like Bob pointed out, the, the irony is they don't. They don't believe Moses, so therefore... They, they won't believe in Jesus. So that's assuming untruth. Now we come to a third class conditional. And a third class talks about a probable future. And it's often what's called in the subjunctive mood. We don't have to talk about that. But again, the outcome in a third class conditional, if then, it's uncertain but likely. Now did I give somebody Mark 5.28? Did I give, oh, there's Mary Alice. Again, this is uncertain but likely outcome. She thought... If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So, yeah, so here's this woman. She's, remember, she's the one who's been bleeding. And she says, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Okay? Now, the idea there isn't, it's, the idea is she isn't exactly certain. Okay? She has faith, but she's not positive. Okay? And the, the, the rendering that uh, this Daniel Wallace, who I really like, he says it's almost as if she's been muttering to herself. Okay? If, if I just touch him, if I just touch him, it's this idea she's really upset. And so you get this angst upon her. And it's interesting, the part of the clothing that she actually touches is the part of the tassel. Okay? And what's interesting is this tassel, and I forget the term in the, in the Greek, but the term, this tassel, in that day, many people would fasten to themselves, uh, the, the rabbis that is, they would fasten tassels, and it was a common saying in the day that the tassels of the Messiah were, in a sense, long. Okay? And so the idea was that some of these Pharisees and scribes and some of the rabbis, they would make their tassels very long. And the implication was, well, maybe I'm the Messiah. And it was almost a boast. So it's interesting, when she touches his tassel, she's saying, I, I think you're the Messiah. Okay? So that's kind of the idea, but, but I, I, I'm not sure. But it's a beautiful... So again, the idea there though, is that she trusts him, okay? But she's not positive. And, of course, she's right, isn't she? She's right and she is healed. So that's the idea there, though, behind the third-class conditional. Let's go to the fourth-class conditional. And this is a less probable future. 
In fact, it's a remote possibility. And I think, Keith, you had 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Yeah, so here Peter is saying, even if you should happen to suffer, the idea is you probably won't. But if you do, then count yourself blessed. That's the idea. Okay. So what I want you to see is that there's these different classes of conditionals and these can help us understand the truth and validity of an argument that the apostle is making. Now what I'm going to show you is that the one that we know uh, this to be, in other words, this if then, is a first class conditional. Now how do we know that? Well, we know it grammatically, but we also know through scripture that salvation is by faith. And if we believe and we continue in our belief, we will be holy and blameless before his sight, right? Now, what's interesting about that, remember what I said, is this is assumed to be true by the speaker. Who is our speaker? Paul is. And who is Paul? He's an apostle, a personal spokesman for Christ. Would he lie to us? Would he deceive us? Could he be wrong? No. He could not be wrong in this. And therefore, it adds all the more weight that this is an assured thing. Okay? This will happen. You can take it to the bank. The Apostle Paul would not lead us astray. Okay? And that's, again, why apostolic authority is so important. Okay? So we know that if, in fact, we continue, we will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, for certain, be blameless on the last day. Okay? I know it's a roundabout way of getting there, but I wanted you to see how you can kind of use these different class conditionals to help you see the truth of Scripture. Okay, now let's go on to talk about where else we see this idea of the perseverance of the saints in the Scripture. We see it also in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. So then, my beloved, Paul writes, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. So here's the command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But now listen to this. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here we have this command to persevere, to work out your salvation, but all the while, all the while we know that it's God who is working in us, through us, for us. Okay? So again, God gets all the glory. And that's why, uh, remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we get to verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared before him that we should walk in them. So again, the works that we do, our perseverance is all made possible by God. So we're commanded to do something that in and of ourselves we can't do. Isn't that interesting? So God commands us to do something that if he doesn't show up on, we're done. It won't happen. Okay? That's, that's the beauty of this here. Now, let me explain something real quick, too. I want to mention this. I like this term, perseverance of the saints, better than eternal security. And let me explain why. I used to use the term eternal security, but I like perseverance of the saints when I'm explaining it because it gets rid of the possibility of eternal presumption. Do we have eternal security? Yes, we do. If you've trusted in Christ, you're eternally secure. But what we want to guard people from is eternal presumption. Okay, so think about it like this. You have a person in their life, and they go on, down, think about they're walking towards Christ and they fall into a mud puddle. The unregenerate will roll in the mud puddle. And the mud puddle might symbolize sin and it might symbolize heresy or apostasy. But they roll in the mud puddle 
they say, this is awesome. They pitch their tent, they bathe in it, and they never get out. Okay? That's the idea of the unregenerate. And so if you would tell them, yes, you're eternally secure, you might lead them astray in the sense that they have presumption. They were never saved to begin with. That's the point. You see what I'm saying? But the regenerate, they fall in the mud puddle, and whether it be, again, wayward teaching or sin, but they always get out again. And they say, I can't believe I fell in that mud puddle. God, forgive me. They call on the Lord. Um, he is faithful and just. If we repent, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it says in First John 1, right? And so they get out of the mud puddle and they keep going towards Christ. They can't stand being in the mud puddle. That's the idea of perseverance of the saints, okay? True, people who have true saving faith will persevere, okay? They will. It, it, it's no other way. And again, God is responsible for their perseverance. And that's what we see in John 10, 27 through 28. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. They will never perish. That is the strongest construction in the Greek possible to negate the possibility of something. It is a uh, um, may plus a subjunctive. There, in other words, it, you could translate it this way. And there is no possibility in the future of any perishing. That's the way you could translate it. There's no possibility. If you've been saved by Christ, you are not going to perish. It's as strong as Jesus could have said it. Okay? So I, I love that. And again, it's Jesus' sheep that hear his voice. Now, we see this all over the scriptures, that if you are Christ, you are eternally secure. But let's ask the question, what about the warnings that we see, for instance, in Hebrews 6, 4 through 9? And I'm glad we've got Bob and Dick here. They've been doing some work in the book of Hebrews. And if I get too far afield, they can probably pull me out of the weeds here. But what I want to do, <laughs> what I want to do is I want to look at this warning in Hebrews 6, 4 through 9. Because remember, we're going to have people that will come to you and they'll say, well, you believe in the perseverance of the saints. Well, what about Hebrews 6, 4 through 9? And we should have some sort of cogent answer, uh, right? And what I think you're going to see is that this scripture doesn't teach a loss of salvation, quite the contrary. So let's look at this passage because this is the most difficult passage that I think we have to wrestle with. In other words, some people think that this passage proves we can lose our salvation, okay? They, think, they seem to think that in the beginning portion of this passage in verse 4, the description is of someone who was truly saved but then cannot be restored to repentance. Are you with me? So let me read it to you. Hebrews 6, 4 through 9, For it is impossible for those who were enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God in the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now let me just stop there. The, again, in the first portion of this passage, what people are saying is the terms enlightened, tasted, and partakers, and again, it's of the Holy Spirit, partakers of the Holy Spirit, th- those are all references to somebody who's genuinely been regenerated. They've been saved. Okay? And therefore, this is a, a person who's been saved and they end up losing their salvation. What I want to lay out before you is that each of those terms highlighted that I have up here, none of them are conclusive in proving that the person is regenerate okay, or saved. Are you with me? So, for instance, let's look at that term enlightened. We actually see that's a, a Greek term, phototizo, and it means to be enlightened. 
And we actually see this referenced other places in the Bible where the idea isn't that someone comes to regeneration or that they're enlightened or illuminated unto seeing the gospel. So let me give you an example of that. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John 1, 9 through 11. And you're going to see this term fotizo in there, and you're going to see that it doesn't necessarily mean somebody comes to uh, the illumination to the effect that they're saved, that they are regenerate. So John 1, 9, John writes, he says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens, and there's that term fotizo, every man. Now, go on to verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Then verse 11, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Then in verse 12, of course, but as many as received him. So the idea here is he comes in and he fotizo, he enlightens every man, but is every man saved? Well, no. In fact, even his own didn't receive him. Okay? So my point being is that enlightened, that term is not conclusive that this person has been regenerate. Okay? That they are, in fact, saved. Does that make sense? It's ambiguous. The context has to tell you one way or the other. So again, we can't look at that and say, ah, they're saved. This, is, this clearly teaches we can lose our salvation. Not, not so. Notice the other term, tasted. It actually comes from geuamai. And I like that because remember in, um, this term is used in Matthew 27.34. That is where wine has been offered to Jesus. Do you remember at the Last Supper the promise that Jesus makes? He says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And it's so beautiful because, remember, there's one cup that they give him, but it's really a vinegar gall, and he takes that. But that's not fruit of the vine, okay? The fruit of the vine they offer him, remember, he's suffering. He's really suffering. He's thirsty. I mean, just a little bit down the hatch would do him some good, okay? But he rejects it. Why? Because he made a promise. He will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. And to me, that's so beautiful because, again, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we know the next time he drinks of that cup, it's with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's always in the back of my mind when we take of the cup. It's just so beautiful. But the whole point is, is the term, in fact, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it correctly here. Yeah, geuamai. Geuamai means he tasted it. But what did he do right after? He spit it out. So it's not the tasting unto partaking it into one's body. That's the idea. It doesn't necessarily mean you're digesting it. He just merely tasted it and he spit it out. So my, my point again here is that you can't, just by using the term tasted, prove that these people have the heavenly gift. They may have tasted it, in a sense, spit it out. That's the idea. Again, the term is not conclusive. That's the point. And then finally, the partakers of the Holy Spirit. This term is actually used And did I give Luke 5, 7 to anybody? Here we're going to see the term partakers. Luke chapter 5, verse 7. So they signaled to the partakers, the partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Yeah, so that's where Jesus tells them, you know, hey, fish on the other side. And Peter doesn't recognize him right away. Well, here they end up catching so much fish that they need partners. They're partners in fishing. The point is, it's a loose association. These aren't the disciples. These are more than likely other fishermen. And so there's this loose affiliation. It's not a tight one. Okay? The point is, this idea of partakers, it doesn't necessarily mean tight associates. It can mean loose associates. It can mean tight associates. But we don't know. Context tells us. 
Okay, are you with me? So again, that term isn't conclusive as to whether or not they're actually, how tight they are with the Holy Spirit. It could be a very loose association. Okay, so the point is those three terms don't prove that in fact this person is regenerate. Now, what proves that they are in fact not regenerate, that they are not saved, is the context. And again, context is always king. Do you see where it's, we left off right here? That's where we're going to start again. Now listen to this. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears crops useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Okay, now we're talking about fruits. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being accursed whose ends is to be burned. What that should bring to mind, friends, is it should bring to mind, for instance, like Matthew 13 or Luke chapter 8, where there's the discussion about the soils. And the seed fell on some soils and fruitful crop grew up. That was an indication of salvation. But if it didn't, if no crop came up, it was burned and it was thrown away as, as chaff, as it were. Okay? And so the idea is if no crop comes, then you don't have salvation. Are you with me? And so this seems to be indicating that those above, in other words, those up here are unsaved because this is talking about not having salvation. Are you with me? These are the type of crops that are burned up. Okay? Yeah, uh, Bill. If they were partakers and then they rejected the seed by which they can be born again yeah. and using the crop analogy, can they reobtain the seed? Can they reobtain the germ by which to be born again? I see what you're saying. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It says it's impossible again to renew them again to repentance. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know. I'd have to study that further. Uh, maybe Bob has some insights on that, but I, I don't know. This passage seems to indicate that these people have re- entered into a state where they will no longer hear from the Holy Spirit. And, um, for instance, we see that warning in the Gospels where people blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What is the issue with blaspheming the Holy Spirit? The issue is you will no longer attribute the works of God to God, but rather to Beelzebub. The idea is, is you will not attribute or listen to the Holy Spirit so that you will not be regenerate. Okay? That's the idea. And so I wonder if that's the condition that would be talked about. And again, that would be those who are unsaved. Okay? Is, are you with me? Well, hold, hold on to that, though. Just hold on to it. I'll come back to it if we have time. Let me just continue on because I want you to see that the conclusive part of this verse, to me, is where we get into this but here. And notice it says, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. The whole point is, if he's confident of better things concerning them, things concerning salvation, what was he talking up above? He was talking about the group that have non-salvation. Okay? So up above was non-salvation, but we don't consider that to be your case. We, can, we think of better things for concerning you, things regarding salvation. You, you follow the logic? Okay? So again, I think that that's conclusive that what Paul was, or uh, I'm sorry, the writer of Hebrews, Apollos or whoever it was, they were referencing, in fact, those who are not saved in Hebrews 6, 4 through 9. So again, friends, I think it's best to take the, the possibility up at the top is those who are truly unregenerate who are not saved. Okay? Now, you may ask the question, well, why, in fact, do we see this warning in the Scriptures? And what I want to talk about is the fact that God uses means to accomplish his tasks. So, for instance, we see that God is sovereign over salvation on the left side. 
God elects those whom he will save. We are again chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And so the question is, well, if God elects those whom he saves, why do we have to preach the gospel? Because God has chosen to use means. We see that in Romans 10, 14 through 17, that he uses the preacher, the one who sends the preacher, and the word. Uh, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so God uses means. Okay. Well, the same thing applies when it comes to our perseverance. Notice again, Christ is called in Hebrews 12 too. He is the author and finisher of our faith. We saw in uh, John 10:27 that his sheep hear his voice and they shall never perish, right? So who's doing it? Well, God is, but God uses means. And in fact, I think these warnings in Scripture, like we just saw in Hebrews 6, 4 through 9, Hebrews 10, 26 through 39, we actually have warnings that the elect listen to and therefore they get out of the puddle. Remember our puddle analogy? And they say, I, I can't take it anymore. I can't be in that. And you keep walking towards Christ, and you're on the straight and narrow. So, again, God is sovereign over the whole thing, but he uses means. And so God is using these warnings to warn his elect, if you are truly mine, this is what you'll look like. And they heed his warnings, and therefore they persevere. But, again, all by God's grace. He does it all. So that's the big picture that I want you to see here. And this actually shows you why we have to be those who hear the word of God in a salvific way. Again, look at Colossians 1.23 where it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Again, this idea of hearing, not just physically, not just the act of hearing sounds go through your eardrum, but hearing in a salvific way. That's what God requires of his people and that was what the problem of the israelites were remember in deuteronomy they're getting ready to head out into the promised land moses is reiterating the terms of the covenant and he gives this desperate news deuteronomy 29 4 he says yet to this day yahweh has not given you a heart to know nor eyes to see nor ears to hear notice god has not given it to them indicating what apart from god they're done they're in the land of evil deeds Literally. (laughs) They won't get to the promised land. They won't remain in the promised land, both figuratively and literally. Because they don't have ears to hear. And so, friends, we need ears to hear. And again, God is the one who gives us that. Okay. Now, um, interestingly enough, again, we see this term in uh, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. And so a little mini application this morning is, are you hearing the word of God? Are you listening to it? Are you turning away to wayward teaching? Are you engaged in wayward doctrines? And it's, I, I think I know my crew here, but over the internet, friends, if you're involved with false teaching, with false doctrines, you're not hearing the voice of the shepherd and you may not be his sheep. And so therefore, repent. Turn to Christ. Come to him on his own terms as revealed in the scriptures and sit under the means of grace so that you may become one of his sheep by God's grace. That's the idea. We have to start hearing in a salvific way. And God's sheep, they do. And I always, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Keith had a... You know, just, that would also bring into very big clarity the concept of staying under the means of grace because staying under the means of grace is how you get out of the puddle. That's right. Those who would leave the means of grace and not continue in what they'd heard using that verse... Yeah. would be this very ones that would be apostating because the means of grace that have been given to them is exactly what they're rejecting. Amen. So the means 
and continuing on in the means is the way that we persevere. That's exactly right. Yeah, well said. We've got another comment back there, and I'm, I'm basically, I think I'm done. Yeah, I just have application. I'll save that for those, just the last word. Yeah, go ahead. Um, when you were talking about Hebrews 6 and that if it's possible to renew them, yeah. you know, or if it's just they're done, um, it says that, you know, they reject the seed, and not only do they not grow what they're supposed to, they grow briars and thorns. Yeah, that's And right. so that's why I think that it's, they're so far hardened that even if you give them the seed again, the weeds will choke it out and kill it, and yeah. so that they're impossible to renew. Right. Yeah. Again, I'd like to study that further, uh, this idea of when does somebody reach a point where they're, they're, they're not savable, if, if you will. And I know the only other place that we see that in the scriptures is where Jesus warns about the unpardonable sin, as it were. And that is where the Pharisees were attributing the works of God to the Holy Spirit, or I mean the works of the Holy Spirit to Beelzebub. And so the point was, is they were in a condition where they would never hear from the Holy Spirit. And if they're never in a condition where they can hear from the Holy Spirit, they will not be regenerate because the seed will never fall upon a good ground at that point. Yeah, Bob? Yes, and I think it's correct to connect the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit with apostasy. Okay. Well, uh, one uh, kind of an illustration that maybe would help us would yeah. be comparing Judas and Peter. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you think about that, Peter uh, denied the Lord, mm, yeah. okay, and he fell, yeah. but he was renewed. Yeah. But Judas could not be renewed, right. and he went out and, and hung himself. So yeah. to our eyes, as people on the face of the earth, we can't tell the difference because we can't see the heart. That's right. So yeah. if we have a Peter and a Judas in our fellowship, we don't know which is which. Yeah, well, that's a good point, yeah. yeah. So in other words, the point is then is we preach the gospel not knowing which. Yeah, we, yeah, don't, we don't know. know which brand they but well, how we end up knowing is... Judas never comes back, yeah. and Peter does. Yeah, great. Okay, so yeah. the warning in Hebrews 6 applies to us. We can't just say, well, that's for some other person. It's not for me. Sure, sure. We need to get the fear of God in us. Yeah. And as you said, re- reading the warning, um, I better get out of this mud puddle. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got a lot of mileage out of that mud puddle. Yeah, yeah. really. But, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's in Peter. Remember the, the swine go back into the yeah, slop? Yeah, exactly. Yep, yeah, right, I, right. I grew up on a farm, but we had pigs, and that's where they go. That's right. Because it's their nature to go there. Okay. But the, the regenerate Christian, it's not their nature to be in that slop. Yeah. And so when they get in there, they say, this is bad, this yeah. is sinful, this is evil. i got to get out of here. I can't here. take it, yeah. Yeah. So the warning applies to everyone, in, uh, both those who maybe don't know the Lord, who could still believe, yeah. or those who do and have fallen into sin, and they read Hebrews 6 and they say, oh my, i got to change. i got to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. By the way, Bill, does that help answer your question? Or did you have something different than that? You know, they've rejected the gospel. They've, they've had prophets and everybody, everybody warned them. And they've gone off into these revivals and things like that, mm-hmm. and they've, they've now embraced heresies. Okay, sure. so what's my response as a Christian? You know, I know I got to be faithful to God and continue to warn them, yeah. but but do I personally have any hope for them to come out of that mess, or are they are they doomed because they rejected the salvific seed that sure. that you just talked about? Well, let's go back to Bob's analogy of, of Peter and Judas. 
again, on this side of glory, we don't know the difference, do we? Uh, so we don't know if they will, in fact, respond. Look at uh, the condition that we found Warren, or Warren Smith found himself in. He uh, certainly would be those who have apostatized a major degree. We don't know, but he ends up coming out of it, and it's all by God's grace, of course, that he, in fact, becomes regenerate. So the point is, remember in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's going or where it's coming. You can't control the wind. The Spirit does what he will. And he regenerates those whom he regenerates. And those whom he leaves reprobate, he leaves reprobate. And again, so our job, I think like you've alluded to there, is we preach the gospel and let God sort them out. <laughs> I know that sounds a little crass, but it's, you know what I mean? The military version is, you know what I'm saying. Uh, okay, so let, let preach the gospel, let God sort it out. Okay, that's, I think, our response. Let me just leave you with this last thought here in application. Again, um, this is Dick's doing. I think it's really good that he reminded me to do this. Just to summarize the section Again, friends, Paul makes clear that the magnificent Christ of Colossians that was presented in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 will present his elect blameless in the sight of God, but warns them that the elect persevere. And so again, we see this idea, eternal security, yes, but eternal presumption, no. Okay? Uh, thanks, you guys, or uh, my friends, the beloved. Uh, we, uh, that was a great time with you, and we'll see you uh, next Sunday.